couple things for you, just kind of some fun things. Uh, I tend to watch the news. I tra- when I watch the news, I, I, I tend to, to watch you know, just news feeds. I'm looking for news, you know, just stuff that happens in the world. Um, you know, not curious necessarily about commentary about it, just the news. But my, I always pick up, and you know, always perk up, my ears perk up when I hear church stuff. It has to do with churches or pastors. And, and three things I caught this past week and that I just caught my attention after I kind of relate them to you. So the one that caught my attention was, this I just read just yesterday. Yesterday, the details, a priest, I believe a Catholic priest, um, was just suspended and removed uh, because apparently, and he's been, he's been a priest for like 25, 30 years, because apparently he's been baptizing people wrong, and they did an investigation to find that he was using the wrong words. In fact, what the report said is that they found that he was using the wrong baptismal formula. And so not only was he removed, but the thousands of baptisms he did, they have now determined to be invalid. And so all these people are just don't know what to do because they thought they were baptized, it was all covered and all done, and now it's all up for grabs. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I have to admit, I'm laughing a little bit because the, the different word he used, instead of baptizing someone saying that I baptize you in the name, he said, we baptize you in the name. Apparently that's invalid. All baptisms are off. So let me reassure you of a couple of things. The formula for baptism is really quite straightforward. Uh, And it's really not a formula. It's real simple. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Yes. You've given your life to Christ and you follow him? Yes. Okay. Get baptized. Done. I mean, it's kind of that simple. Then, you know, one of the natural things. So quite honestly, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized, that should be a question you should be asking yourself. But if I baptized you through the years, you've been in the tank with me, uh, you know that uh, I will say, you know, I say, you all set to go. And you'll say, yep. And I'll say, so it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're ready, I'm ready. And you say, yes, boom, down we go. We don't... <laughs> Once we say yes, we're not giving you any room, turn back. It's just going to happen really quickly. So just so you know, we got the formula down. It's a biblical formula. You are covered and you are safe. I feel so badly for these people that are now, they don't know what to do because it was rendered invalid. Um, friends, very sincerely, we just follow Scripture. Scripture is clear. Follower of Jesus, get baptized. And, you're, and you're, <laughs> there's, no, there's no wrong formula from that perspective. Second thing caught my attention, that this one I, I just frightened me to death, is that uh, a video, I saw the video, a pastor in the church in the middle of the service, pastor standing up front and his pants fell down. You can't tell. I got two belts, wire holding. I got, I am so cinched up. I got to tell you right now, nothing's falling down. And, but here's the part that really just, I, I, I kept watching because he kept going. Now he regrew, I mean, he pulled his pants up, but I'm, but then he just kept going and I'm going, you have got to be kidding me. I just tell you right now, if it happens, service is done done. If it happens, you get a free pass. Don't even wait for me to dismiss you. Just run. If it happens, just go and go as quickly as you can. For both of our sakes, go as quickly as you can. Third thing, I'm sure you've heard the news and and watching a a lot of different coverage of it from different angles has been an outbreak of God's spirit happening uh, at a college university in uh, in Kentucky, Asbury, Asbury College, Asbury University. 
Uh, and just so you know, if you watch some of the news coverage, you can't tell sometimes whether it's real or not real because of how they cover it. Let me just say to you, very, very real, very authentic, very powerful. Um, I had an email exchange this past week with one of our pastors in our alliance denomination, whose church is one of the closest churches to Asbury. You know, and he said, I'm, gonna, you know, he's gonna, I'm actually going to see him a couple of days. And he said he's going, he'll give more thorough report, but he said, man, it's an authentic, authentic moving of God. And he said, it's just it's so powerful. He said, I'll never, don't ever doubt that God is not able <clears throat> to do the impossible. He said, it's such a real thing that's taking place. And I, I want to assure you that part of the struggle is this. Whenever the term revival is used, it's, it's, it's used in so, in so many different ways without good definition. And on top of that, we have seen some things on television with televangelists, some of those things, that if you hear that, you become suspicious immediately. You kind of go, I don't know, or get nervous. Please know one of the hallmarks. One of the hallmarks of the real moving of God is that you don't look at it and think it's focused around a person. Uh, it's not focused around a healer. It's not focused around a preacher. One of the most authentic marks is when it's just focused around God and the, the Holy Spirit seems to be working. We've sent a couple of our denominational leaders have gone to, to be participate and see it uh, and be a part of what's taking place. And it's the real deal. There's, there's nothing outlandish that's happening. It's just real. Uh, it's quiet. It's humble. It's gracious. It's people worshiping God. It's people meeting God. It's confession happening. It's just this reality of God's presence alive. And I just want to assure you that this, this Holy Spirit is still at work. The gospel still works and the movement of God is happening. And so as you see it, follow it, pray for it, pray that God will do it, uh, a thing in your own, uh, something like that in your own life. But I want to give you the key Regardless of how you, refine, how you define revival, and there's, there's the problem, it gets defined differently, I want to give you a definition or, or an explanation as to how to have revival in your own life at any moment, and I mean it so sincerely. If you go back and look at what's happening at Asbury right now, if you look at what's happened in this country in different times when, quote unquote, those outpourings of God's spirit has been very evident, there's always been one central key. In recent history, all through times in biblical history, and the one central key is the word obedience. The key to unleashing the power of God's spirit in your life is to simply be obedient. Some of the basic history I looked at what's happened at Asbury, it started by a couple of students that felt God telling them to go do this, to confess to something, and they did it. And when you are obedient to God, his spirit always is manifest. And so whether that be personally, corporately, obedience, obedience, and you experience that same power of God's spirit. So be praying and watching. It's exciting to see what's taking place. God's, God's work is not done, and it, his presence is being felt and seen in very different ways and powerful ways. This morning, I want to look at God's word together, and I want to begin by asking a question, which I know the answer to, and that is this. Do you ever find yourself nervous or anxious about what you see going on in the world today? And, of course, the answer to that is yes. I mean, there's so many things you could choose from. Now, I haven't even gotten to the personal stuff yet. We're just talking about the world. And all you got to do is look at the world and say, you know, absolutely. And you got lots of things to choose from. Could be anything, financial stability in the world. Yep, got it. Politics, yep. UFOs, uh-huh. Uh, balloons, absolutely. Um, <laughs> pandemics, epidemics, vaccines, no vaccines. How about wars? How about China? How about Iran? How about North Korea? How about Russia? Pick your thing. 
Pick your thing. There's a lot to worry about that's taking place in our world today. And I'm not even talking about the personal stuff in your life. I'm just talking about the stuff that inundates us every day and we're wondering what is going on, right? It occupies our minds, our attention, catches us off guard. And I would suggest to you that you don't have to be constantly anxious to be anxious. Because what happens in most of our lives, we get anxious about something, then we get distracted. That's how it works. But when the distraction gone, we're back at that thing or the next thing. And if you would say yes to that, you are not alone. That's where we live. In this past year, the economy has been a focal point. We have watched gas prices coming just climb. They come down now. We've watched gas prices climb. We've watched people predict that we're going to run out of fuel. We have heard inflation's running amok. We have found recession as a possibility coming up. And so one of the questions that's a reasonable question is, so what happens to the church when recession hits? Well, I'll tell you what happens. We have more people and less money because more people because of fear. And because of recession, less money. Well, what happens when inflation runs crazy? Well, truth of it, it's kind of a converse thing. We don't have as many people, but we still have less money. So that, that's, you know, it's, the church loses out both ways, no matter how that goes. And, and, and the key piece is this, that in those moments, what happens is that people respond and react to fear. Uh, if you go back and look in some, some recent history, and I would say that one of the key points is uncertain times in our lives tends to get our attention, and I would even suggest tends to get your attention looking up. It may not even be looking up for help, it might be looking up saying, what are you doing? But uncertain times gets our attention. If you go back and look at some recent history years ago that uh, we were in this meeting right, I mean in this room for an a, a annual church meeting or a quarterly business meeting when the first time we came, word came out that we were sending bombers in Iraq. We stopped the meeting, everybody went home. Everybody wanted to see the news, watch what was taking place. For the next subsequent weeks, church was packed, and not just ours, but all, cons all sorts of churches. Why? Fear. 9-11 hit, and for weeks and weeks and weeks after 9-11, this church, along with countless churches, packed full of people. Why? Fear. It's that simple. COVID comes. COVID hits. In three days, in three days, we went from having a great church service and worship together. Three days later, no service. And within 10 days, we pivoted to going online because everything was closed. Everyone was locked down. Everyone stayed home. Do you realize that in the weeks immediately following that, where we had everything online, everything was streamed, do you realize that every single week, quite literally thousands of people watched our stream service? That's just us. I mean, every, every place had the same, uh, same reaction. But just here, thousands of people didn't miss a Sunday watching online. Now, most of our church people, most of those are church folks that maybe come once every six or eight weeks. But man, every week they watched. People from not, outside of our church were watching. Thousands every single week. You know why? Not because of convenience. Even though I was the first to tell you eating pancakes and bacon and watching me on TV, that's a pretty good deal. I got that. <laughs> But it wasn't that. You know what it was, right? Fear. Anxious. Worry. Where's this going? What's going to happen next? I mean, I'll state again. The truth is uncertainty most often causes us to look up. And let's just use your personal life, for example, here. Do a quick, honest survey. 
If you go back and look, would you agree to the statement? You don't have to, but would you agree that if, you, if you're honest, you go back and look, that you have found that you have found yourself drawn to God or at least talking more to God during difficult times than good? Uncertain times, God's got your attention. Uncertain times, you've been talking to God more, more than others. It's the way it goes. It can be a financial scare, a health scare, a health issue, a family crisis. A family loss, a family death. It's amazing how quickly um, the average person, church person, turns into a prayer warrior in uncertain times and bad times, right? Oh, God is how it starts. September 2009, you might recall the flight taking off from New York. Um, Sully Sullenberger was the pilot, you may call, and taking off from that flight, a small plane hit a flock of geese. Both engines died, and Sully Sullenberger landed the plane on the Hudson River. He landed that plane on the Hudson River right outside the door of the college where I, where we serve, on, I serve on the board at NIAC, or now called Lyons University. And of course, we all watched. We all, it was just an incredible thing to watch. We watched the rescue that happened. We watched it. Nobody died. They were standing on the wings, and of course, the, made the news. And I, there was an interview that took place with Sully and his co-captain and all of the flight attendants uh, in a kind of a group setting and they're asking all sorts of questions and then somebody made the switch from from the cockpit and said so to the flight attendant so what was it like in in the cabin when all this is taking place and the head flight attendant said this it was incredibly quiet she said it was quiet no screaming no crying no shouting and just quiet and someone said, well, how do you explain that? Her answer was pretty quick and easy. It was pretty obvious. Everybody was praying. Absolutely. And interesting thing, the pilot didn't have to come on and say, folks, would you please commence prayer? <laughs> the pilot didn't have to come on and say, hey, you may have noticed that the engines aren't running any longer. Uh, everyone knew that. Everyone saw the bank. Admittedly, he got on and said, folks, I'm going to have to have you brace for a water landing. And that's all he had to say and everybody prayed. What's interesting, in that one moment of uncertainty, everybody's praying to whatever it is they pray, pray to or who they pray to. In that one moment, yet people, I'm sure, are saying the rosary, rubbing Buddha's belly, rocking back and forth, trying to find an east-facing window, people trying to remember the Lord's Prayer. I knew it started with four score or something. No, that's not it, you know. <laughs> Everyone's trying to pray in the crisis um, when we're scared and we're in a jam. And we're earnestly looking for God. Let's be honest. Satan himself could show up and try to tempt you. And you will not fall to temptation. Not then. Now, when things are going really easy, not so much. Because that's the way that it goes. It's for this reason that it seems that God is able to do more in uncertain times than in calm times. Wouldn't you agree? If I'm honest with my own life, it seems that God is able to do more in me in the uncertain times because it's in those moments I give him my undivided attention. I think that um, this truth of uncertainty, uncertain lives, is true not only in our personal individual lives, but it's also true corporately. It's true in churches, it's true in the country, it's true in the international world. God seems to be able to do more in uncertain times. And the point is this, when things are fine and easy, we are less likely to look to God. In fact, it's in those times when we're most likely to drift. Let me tell you a key reason why the Bible is so critical to your life. And not just having one, but actually reading it. God's word and reading the Bible is so critical to life because the Bible is actually the record of God's faithfulness in uncertain times. If you find yourself saying, we're in uncertain times, I hope you're reading your Bible more. Because it's the record 
of God's faithfulness in uncertain times. In fact, it's the record of how men and women just like us have found God to be sure, even though life was unsure. That's why God's word is so critical. So let me begin by this statement. So regardless of how you view the world, regardless of what you might be facing right now, either personally in your personal life or how you view what's taking place in our world today, I'm going to make this statement. I can show you from scriptural history, I can show you from spiritual history, I can show you from secular history and take you back in times that things have been at least as bad, if not worse, than things are currently. And if you're facing something personally, I can take you back through history and show you people who have faced things at equal to yours or worse than yours. And then with that, I'll make this statement. So please, please, please hear. I'll make the case and then I'll say, so here's the point. God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. That should encourage you so much right now. That we can go back and see all sorts of horrible times in history, including ours right now, depending how you view it, where you're at, and remind ourselves God hasn't changed. In fact, hear this statement. God is the expert. He's the only expert on how to take care of his people during uncertain times. So you can trust him. Let me remind you, uh, remind you of a verse in the Bible that we actually fall back to, which is a, a great passage, so I don't mean to sound in a negative way. And the passage is Romans 8, 28. Here's what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, there's a personal note that we grab hold of that says, whatever I'm going through, God's working. But there's also a corporate idea there, a bigger issue that simply says this. In the uncertainty of times... God's at work. In troubling times, God is at work. When the days look dark, God is at work. In all of the problems of all the difficulties of life, God is at work. He is always at work. And he gets more done in those uncertain times than he does when everything is smooth and clear. But that verse only really gives a picture of the end. What it says, you're going through a difficult time. You're going through a hard moment. You're going through uh, times of, of worry or anxiety. You look at the world going, oh, where the world's headed? I get all that. And you can look at that verse and go, but God's working everything out for the end. But doesn't answer the question, what do you do in the meantime? And that's really the question you want to know, right? I mean, that's where I live. I want to meet, I, I, I meantime, I got it. What, what do I do until then? I mean, you know, you're in the middle of crisis. So what am I supposed to do while I'm waiting? I mean, my, when, what do you do when the bank account gets smaller and smaller and you still don't have the money? I mean, what do you do when they don't call you back and they promise they'd call you back? What do you do when you're getting lonelier and lonelier? What's happening when everything's going in the wrong direction and you just need one win and you can't seem to find the win? So what do you do in the meantime? That's our theme this morning. This morning I want to look at some verses from the book of Philippians. Now, Philippians is a book, a letter, which is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Philippi. Philippi was located in northeast Greece, right on the border of what's now today Macedonia. So it's right up in that section. And I need to remind you of some of the things that Paul experienced because as I will walking through some of the things he has to teach us, if you don't understand those experiences, that's a problem because the experiences that Paul went through actually brings credibility 
to the verses that we're going to look at. If you don't know his history, if you don't know some of the things that happened in Paul's life, then when I begin to challenge you on how to live based on those verses, it'll be too easy for you to say, ah, he, he doesn't understand me. He doesn't get it. He's not faced what I'm facing. He's not going through what I'm going through. So it's real easy to, to discredit the teachings of Paul unless you know some of that history. He hasn't faced what I'm facing. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Now, admittedly, the story of the Apostle Paul is incredible. We've talked about that not too long ago, so I won't spend a lot of time, but it's actually an incredible story. Here's a Jewish guy, a, a, a religious aristocrat, who has a life mission, and that is to run down, seek out, find Christians, torture them, and, or, or kill them. I mean, that's his mission. And along the way of him doing that, you'll recall, Jesus calls him by name and says, hey, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? And notice he says to me, because don't forget that God's spirit dwells inside of, his, of the believer. So Jesus says, why are you doing this? And then calls Paul, so you, you got a new, I got a new plan for you. You're going to work for me. You're going to live for me. And Paul follows Jesus. Incredible story. To go from one who tracks down and beats and kills Christians to one who is out there wholeheartedly selling the story of Jesus Christ. So that, that's incredible by itself. But it's, what's more incredible is he's doing this in a, in a, a Hellenistic, Greek-Roman type society where everything goes. In that culture at that time, anything goes, any lifestyle goes, any God you want. I mean, it couldn't be a more pagan lifestyle. If you look at our country today and you think, oh, look at us, then you, you have no idea what Paul was living in. Because, man, our, our country today looks like church compared to the, the culture that Paul was in in that day. Horrible culture. And yet, here's what's amazing. He starts telling a story about Jesus. I mean, he just, talk, he just starts telling the people about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And he wasn't just the Messiah for the Jews, but he's the Messiah for everybody. He didn't, he didn't come for their sins, came from all of our sins. In fact, he tells the story that Jesus came and he died. He was crucified. He was put on a cross and killed. Three days later, he came back to life. Let's be honest, that story alone is a wow factor. I mean, someone died and came back to life, and if you weren't, didn't see it for yourself, you'd be pretty slow to buy in. But read the historical accounts people bought in because God's Spirit was at work. And so he would tell the story, and they would say, yeah, I want in. I want that. And so Paul planted all of these little churches up and, up and down the Mediterranean Sea coast, all these churches of people who said, I will follow Jesus. On one occasion, they drag him out of the temple in Jerusalem, and they're going to beat him. And the only reason they didn't beat him is because the police showed up. The Roman, guard, the Roman soldiers, and they were the police at that time, they, they show up and they arrest Paul. And in fact, what we, everything we believe is that they arrested him not because he'd done anything wrong yet, but they were arresting him because that's the only way to protect him. So they put him under arrest, but the religious leaders are angry because they, they want this whole way movement, this Jesus movement, they want it put to, to an end. In fact, they killed Jesus thinking they would stop it. That didn't stop it. And now they got Paul who is, is in the forefront. So they want him killed. And so they come up with charges because they can't stone him because he's just been arrested. So they create these charges. Now, somewhere along the way where they create these charges, these accusations against Paul uh, to get him arrested and for something to happen, somewhere along the way, Paul plays a little a trump card that no one knows about. And he says, well, just so you know, by the way, I happen to be a Roman citizen. Now, that's key because don't forget that Jerusalem and all of Israel is under Roman rule. And so it's easy to think that, you know, that maybe Paul's just another Jewish guy. He was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen. That's a game changer when he says to them, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. I demand my rights. 
Changed everything. See, if you weren't a Roman citizen, don't forget, you're just under the, 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 the thumb of Rome. But if you're a Roman citizen, you had rights. Like Paul could say, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. You're not going to try me here. I want to go to Rome. I want my trial to be in Rome in front of Caesar. And by law, they had to say, okay. So the story continues. So they arrest him. They arrest him and they ship him to put him on a ship and ship him off to Rome with a couple of Roman guards. So he'd be chained to guards. While on the ship, they had bad weather, and they're literally lost at sea for about two weeks until the storm finally pushes them into the rocks, crashes them in the rocks, and they become shipwrecked. They lived in this shipwrecked fashion for three months through the winter months. Whole time, the guards are still doing their job. These are pretty, these are pretty committed guards. You know, at that point, you kind of think, hey, each for their own. But nope, they stay right there. Paul's still in chains and still under arrest. They get him to Rome finally. Once they get to Rome, the backlog of the trial is so long, it takes two years. The whole time, Paul's in prison. Actually, he's put into, into home confinement with his guards. Whole time under arrest. Now, comes to our point in the story. It's while he's under arrest, he can't, he can't be with people, so he starts writing letters. And this book of Philippians, what we call the book of Philippians, is one of the letters that he wrote. He wrote. And in fact, what we're going to read in just a moment is so impractical. It is so out there that you have to know the background because it's so out there. If you don't know the background, you're going to go, no, I'm, I'm writing it off. The guy doesn't understand life. The guy doesn't understand what I'm going through. You want to write it off except for you can't because his story is compelling. Did you ever have one of those moments where you're telling a story and somebody trumps your story type of thing? You know, it'd be kind of, you know, I mean, I, I'll give you for instance, but it doesn't happen, but it'd be kind of like, you know, you're, you're telling friends a story. I was walking on the sidewalk and some kid went, went by on a little foot scooter and he bumped me and knocked me down and I skinned my knee. And man, I was upset with that kid and, you know, I'm still healing from my skin. And I think I might sue that kid. You know, and all your friends are going, oh, yeah, you have a right. Stand up for yourself, you know. And then in the group, somebody goes, yeah, I had a similar thing. I was, I was going down with my family and a drunk driver hit me um, and put me in the hospital. They didn't think I'd ever walk again. I was in the hospital for months. But look, I'm back walking. And by the way, I forgave the guy. I met the guy that hit me, forgave him. And in fact, we go to church on Sunday. And you're going right? See, Paul's the kind of guy, and I can equate to this to my, to, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. Paul's the kind of guy where the illustration would go like this. We're in a group setting, and I say, man, you can't believe what happened Sunday. I'm getting up preaching, and the people started to boo me and told me to get off the stage. Not this Sunday, but one Sunday, I'm up there preaching, and they started booing me and told me to get off the stage. And man, I'm just crushed. And Paul goes, yeah, I get to, I was preaching one time, and they dragged me out and started to beat me. Huh? He goes, yeah, that was just one time. Oh, there's more? Yeah, another time they dragged me out and they did beat me. In fact, they, they, they left me, they only stopped stoning me because they thought I was dead. In fact, yeah, I mean, I think about it now, I can't tell you how many times I was beaten and whipped and, and, and uh, threatened. Uh, I was in prison, I was in jail. Uh, I picked up a viper one time, poisoned a snake, and it bit me. Um, and now I'm on my way to trial where I know they're going to find me guilty and actually put me to death. And it makes me feel pretty good about the booze y'all gave me. And so that's the kind of story Paul has. And please note what I just listed for you. It's all factual. So you have to remember that when Paul says this in Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. So let's talk about what we do in the meantime. Let me offer a prayer. Father, these, just in these next few minutes, speak to our hearts. 
for the person worried, person that's anxious, for the person that sees the world, for the person that's in a personal moment, for the person that is going through a a divorce or a financial difficulty, whatever it might be in this moment, may your Holy Spirit, we know your Holy Spirit's present, but in this moment, may your Holy Spirit invade us and invade this room in such a way that we would be encouraged with the fact that we can trust you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me hit a couple of things for you very quickly here. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, first I would say to you uh, that if, I mean, we, our first reaction is he doesn't understand. But I just kind of took that argument out, of, out for you. Because I just described everything. And truth of it is, if he had just said rejoice in the Lord and stop there, we'd all go, nice, nice. You know, I'm going to go to Hobby Lobby and see if I can't find a pillow with that on it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think Hobby Lobby, I, I'll bet I get a thing for the wall that just says rejoice in the Lord. But that's a nice catch. I like that. But the problem is he doesn't do that. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And now we go, well, there's the problem. Rejoice. It's still nice, but not quite as nice because now it's harder. You see, Paul apparently doesn't understand the idea of rejoicing. And the root word is joy. And so if you're going to say rejoice in the Lord always, you kind of go, I don't think Paul understands this idea, concept of joy. Let me help you with this. Very sincerely, this is not a loaded thing. Let me, help, let me give you a picture that will help you understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord always because that's not easy. So here's what we'll do. Here's the exercise. So I'm going to say take, take the word rejoice in the Lord. Take the word in the Lord and just throw it out for a moment. This is, not, this is not a sacrilege. Just toss that out and just finish the sentence any way that you want. It's not a loaded question. I'm not going to come back later and say, oh, you vile people. Trust me. You're okay here. Rejoice in, fill in whatever makes you happy. Very sincerely. Rejoice in your new job. Rejoice in holding my children. Rejoice in my paycheck. Rejoice in my, in my new house. Rejoice in the smell of my new car. Go ahead. You can put anything you want in there. And when you substitute it like that, you begin to get the idea, which simply means to rejoice in something means that you sit there and you just focus and you just enjoy the good thing. You just enjoy the feeling that you have. You just enjoy that emotion that comes when you ponder it. If you get a new car and you sit in this car, you shut the door and you go, oh, I'm rejoicing in the chemicals that I'm smelling in this car right now because it's the chemicals of newness, right? So quite honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. You are just rejoicing. It means you are allowing the emotion that whatever it is you're looking at, thinking about that brings you happiness, you are allowing that emotion to come into your life at that point and take over. Nothing wrong with that. Let's just transfer it over to God. It's the same God concept. Rejoice in the Lord means this. You reflect on God's goodness and his mercy in your life until the emotions come and catch up with the reality that you're currently facing. Get that? Because when we find ourselves anxious, we find ourselves worried, we find ourselves in some kind of battle, to rejoice in the Lord always is to stop and just focus on him, his glory, his mercy, and his grace. And you do that until the emotion of that catches up with the reality and keeps it all in check. So if you don't know how to rejoice in the Lord, just rejoice in whatever it is you really love and then switch and you get it. I'm going to just think about the things that God has done for me and I'm going to keep doing that until that emotion kind of catches up with the reality I'm in right now. Let's be honest. Our lives are generally pretty good. 
I mean, so here's the problem we have. Typically, as Americans, it's hard for us to rejoice in just the Lord because we have a lot to rejoice in. Wouldn't you agree? And I'm not putting that down. God has blessed us, and, and, and admittedly, you're pretty blessed. Now, you might say, well, I, I, I could stand some more money. I'm not independently wealthy. I still have bills to pay. I'm still trying to figure out how to retire, all those things. I got it. I got it. But if you compare us, we talk about this, compare us to most of the rest of the world, hands down, we are blessed. And if you don't believe me, and I know we got payments to make in those cars, just you, you take a survey of the parking lot and look at the cars out there, and you'd go, huh, pretty blessed. And so it means to stop and realize that we struggle at times, to be honest, with just rejoicing in the Lord because we've got a lot to rejoice in. It's a lot of good stuff. And I think Paul would say, and I mean this sincerely, I think Paul would say, man, that, that stuff is great. It's fantastic. Paul would say, I like that stuff too. But if your rejoicing is in the paycheck and you take a pay cut, well, then what happens? If your rejoicing is in the job and you lose your job, then what happens? If your rejoicing is in the new car, the problem with that is one day you walk in, the chemical smell is gone. <laughs> then what happens? You see, Paul says, I'm going to give you an idea here. Why not rejoice in the one who doesn't change as opposed to the things that will come and go? Verse 5, and then he says, this kind of throws us off the works a little bit. He then says, now let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So that's a little surprise in there. Let your gentleness be evident to all. But it means this. Catch this. It means don't let the circumstances you're in erode your integrity. Don't let the thing that you're facing right now erode your character. Because what's interesting, that word that's used there uh, for the, about your gentleness, be evident your gentleness, that word gentleness, interestingly enough, is very similar to that word interchangeable in some places with the word character, which both fit. Don't let your character erode in difficult times. You ever been with people that you know, they seem to be, I mean, usually the you know, general rule is they're happy, easy to be around, whatever. But when they're in a crisis or anxiety, is like, stay away. Because it seems like they've lost that gentle spirit. They've lost that calmness. They've lost the joy. And so Paul says is this, so I want you to rejoice in, in the Lord always and don't let the circumstances that you're in erode your character or your integrity. You see, if your joy is only associated with good times or with good circumstances, then what happens when those circumstances change? They leave. So goes your joy. Now, be honest here. Wouldn't you agree? This is a loaded question. I'll tell you right up front. Wouldn't you agree that there is something special, something compelling, and something drawing about people who just radiate joy no matter, no matter their circumstance? I mean, wouldn't you agree when you see somebody going through a difficult time and they're still joyful, wouldn't you agree that that's compelling? That you kind of go, I just, I just, I mean, I, I don't just want that, but I want to be near that. Now listen carefully. If, there, if I can bare my heart and soul, here I go. That's what we're supposed to be to the world. And one of the concerns I'm having that I'm seeing is that more and more Christians have lost their joy. They are more taken up by the stuff of life. They are more taken up by the circumstances of the world. They're more taken up by what they have or what they don't have that they're losing their joy. Please hear this. The world is really out of hope when the church has lost its joy. Because we're supposed to be the compelling nature in an uncertain world that says, it's okay. 
we got God. It's okay. He's unchanging. Financially tough? Yeah, could be. But God's still God. Pandemic, vaccine, unvaccine? God's still God. So, so get on with it. Follow him. Church, if there's, a, if there's a message and a message today, I would plead with you to rediscover the joy of having an unchanging God in your life. Because when, when church loses that, then there is no hope in the world. I get the fact God is still present. I got it. But you know, God has chosen to demonstrate his love to the world through who? The church. And when the Christians look just like the world, caring about all the stuff that's going on or whatever, as opposed to the message of, yeah, I care, but I'm not bothered. I care, but I am secure. If we lose that, the, church, the world has lost their hope. God has not gone anywhere, so act like he's still God. And he's still present. Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. Oh, man, this is where Paul crosses the line right here. Um, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, present your request to God. So here's the deal. This is the part that just Paul crosses the line. He's robbing us of all our well-earned anxiousness. You know, the worry that we have, I've worked hard to get to that point, And here he is telling me, just don't do it. Now, I've looked at this verse every way I can to see if there's any better way to read it. And there just isn't. I mean, I tried taking the word, see, anything. You know, if you look at it as it's written in one word, anything, it says, so be anxious, about, don't be anxious about anything. That's like anything. I thought, well, maybe it's easier to handle if I, if I put it in two words, meaning don't be anxious about anything. It's just as bad. <laughs> it's just as bad. There's no good way around it. And so we got to figure out then how to reckon it. And let's be honest, when you're going through a crisis and somebody comes up to you and says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. God's God. Don't worry about it. See, on the outside, I go, oh, thank you so much. That is so valuable. Oh, why didn't I think of that? And what are you saying on the inside? You idiot. Get away from me. Don't you think? I know that. Not helpful. It's not helpful. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. Uh, he keeps going back to the, the same verse, back to verse 6. He goes, so don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, every situation, that's great. See, at least I could write off if I could just kind of qualify the moments, but then he goes, every situation. But let's change it. Here's the good news. Paul says, listen, every situation, every marriage situation, every job situation, Every school situation, every relationship situation, every situation. Catch it. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, I got really good news for you because I'm going to give you something that works in every situation. You see, that is really good news because we tend to have this attitude that goes, well, not my situation. Paul goes, oh yeah, every situation. It doesn't matter what situation. Paul goes, I got something that works every situation. In every situation, when you worry or when you're anxious about the stuff going on, he says, here's the answer. He goes, I want you to shift the focus of your worry and anxiety over into a conversation with God. He goes, I want you to shift your anxiety over to talking with God. Now, tune in here very, very, very sincerely. Pay close attention. I'm about to give you something that is radically important, and I mean this so sincerely, can radically change your life. And this is new truth I've been learning as I've been studying for today. And, not, not, yeah, and I didn't come up with it. I've been reading it. And I'm going, absolutely, that's the secret. When, 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 I, it, when it works, I get it. 
And I haven't been able to have somebody put the right key, key finger on exactly what it was, but I got it. Here we go. If, when you, if, if you just heard me say, or if you hear the Apostle Paul say, don't worry, you're anxious, pray. If that's what you hear. Don't worry, pray. Now that sounds really good. Don't worry, pray. You've missed it. And I've missed it my whole life. Because, you know, that's how we read that. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but then he says, but pray and you know, bring your petitions, whatever. We look at that and we go, yeah, don't worry, pray. But, but you missed it. I missed it. And in fact, if you miss it, it's really, really critical. Because if that's, how you, if, you, if that's how you read it, then there's a key thing that's missing here. So if you tell me, Scott, don't worry, pray, my answer to you would be kind of what I think yours would be, and it would be like this. What do you think I've been doing? Don't be anxious, but pray. What do you think I've been doing? I mean, I've been praying nonstop about the situation. I don't stop praying. I have become the Mother Teresa and Billy Graham combined of prayer warriors here about the thing. So when you tell me, don't worry, pray, I'm saying, I've been praying. I can't pray anymore. I mean, if prayer and holiness were connected together, I'm at the, whole, I'm at the point of pure holiness because all I've been doing is praying. See, you miss it. Back to the text. It says this. Look at it. It says, by prayer... It says, don't be anxious about anything, but, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So by prayer, okay, got it, pray. Petition, I got it, that's prayer with a little more, little more specific direction. And thanksgiving, I know I should be thankful in God and all things, so I got it. So pray with thanksgiving. But then Paul adds a word, and that's the key word here coming up. Paul adds a word that's not a prayer word. He actually adds a word that's not even a really spiritual word. And that's the word pres- present. It says, you know, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, you can take it like I've done for years, which just means get all done and just tell God what you want. That's present. Present it to God. But I just learned that's not what it means. That there's a hidden little meaning there in the Greek that, I mean, it means present just like you would define it. But what's interesting about it, the word that's used is actually a word that was used in like theater. When it talks about presenting, it talks about revealing the mystery. You know, you go to a dinner theater type of thing and there's a whodunit type deal and you wait for the, who's going to reveal who's the killer, reveal the plot line. You're watching a magic show and you're, and you're, you're sitting there and I wish they revealed the secret. How do they do the trick? That's the word that's used. So you go through this process with God of praying and then it says to reveal or to, you know, to reveal the, the secret, if you will. Well, what does that mean for prayer? This is really odd and very important. This is not just praying, oh, I hope I get this job. This is not just praying, oh, Lord, I, I, I don't want to be lonely anymore. Uh, put, you know, give, put a guy in my life and, and, and get a, give me a wife. Or, oh, Lord, pay the bill because I'm running out of money. It's not that. You see, the truth of it is, we've already been praying for all those prayers. And maybe Paul was saying, maybe it's time for something a little deeper. Because if you think about it, I pray for things all the time. And I'll be honest, I don't know that I always under, find the peace that passes all understanding while I'm just praying for the thing to happen. Now, times of uncertainty push to the surface. Here's what happens in my life. Times of uncertainty brings to the surface my deepest insecurities. Times of uncertainty in this world kind of push to the forefront the things I worry about most, the things I carry about. It brings to the surface my, in my life the things that, that, the things that I try to bury, the things that are my, my deepest insecurities or worries. Now, here's the issue. Most of our prayers are not prayers that address God at the deepest part of our hearts. Most of our prayers to God only stay at the surface of what I want him to do next 
or even need him to do. Oh, Lord, pay the bill. We're running out of money. But it doesn't invite God to the deepest place. Now, you can pray, God, please help me find my car keys. Oh, God, I need the job. Oh, God, pay the bills. Oh, God, please heal the cancer. I got it. But if you think about that, that doesn't help anxiety. That kind of prayer doesn't help anxiety at all. Maybe Paul is trying to teach us something about anxiousness that kind of goes like this. So when you're anxious, get on your knees and, and begin the prayer which says, you know, God, God, here's what I want you to do. But instead of just that, get to the part where you say to God, you know, here's what I want, but here's why I want it. Here's why I need you to do this. Here's, here's what's going on behind the scenes. This thing I'm asking you for, I got to tell you, God, it's stirring up some emotions in me. And maybe you'd share those emotions with God. I think that Paul is saying, when anxious, reveal to God the hidden secrets of your heart. When you're anxious and uncertain times, don't allow those times to bury the stuff we usually bury, but allow them to come to the surface. And unfortunately, when it brings it to the surface of our lives, it's usually our deepest fears. Unfortunately, what happens in these critical moments is this deep stuff comes out. And if we will get to the point where we'll get past the job and past the money and past the house and past the marriage and past the spouse or whatever it might be, we have an opportunity for God to do something incredible for you. Now listen, I think it's our failure to get to this level of honesty with God that keeps many of us from enjoying this last part, which is the best part of what Paul says. And it's in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which means you can't explain it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We miss out on the peace of God. I can be honest with you, I have prayed for a lot of things, and not always do I experience in my praying for them the peace of God. You know why, right? Because I'm praying for what I want, and I haven't gotten to the place of revealing my heart as to who I really am and where I'm at. Now, this word guard, it says, listen, you'll experience peace of God, which transcends all understanding, and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. That word guard means to watch over, to protect, to defend, to hold, to stop. I mean, to stop the attacks. I mean, that, that's the idea of guarding. Friends, the reason why so many of us are so ridden with worry and anxiousness about what's happening in the world around us or happening in our lives is because we have not invited God we have not allowed our Heavenly Father to guard our hearts because we're too busy sending him off to go guard our marriage, go guard our paycheck, go guard my job. God, this is what I need you to do as opposed to inviting him into the deepest recesses of our hearts to guard our hearts. God says, what if you actually allowed me to stand guard over your heart? What if you had peace in the crisis? What if you could have calm in, without, with, without, in any situation with, 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 regardless of the uncertainty? And he goes, you can. But you're going to have to get beyond asking me for stuff. Even stuff like heal the cancer, which is critical. Pay the bill, critical. But you've got to go deeper. Now, this is critical. Um, this process is not a one and done thing. And that's how, what I want you to see. 
because troubles keep coming. Anxiousness keeps coming. So here's the picture I want you to get. Worry comes. Uh, anxiety comes. Shift it. Shift the focus from it. Shift it over to talking with God. And now catch this. And you keep talking to God. You get serious with God. You get past the surface, get to the heart issues, and you keep doing that. Here it comes until the peace comes. Now, this is radically different than what we usually think. See, our thought process is keep praying till the circumstances change. Keep praying until the marriage changes. Keep praying till the spouse changes. Keep praying till she comes home. Keep praying till he comes home. Keep praying till my daughter changes or till my son changes. Keep praying till the world changes. Keep praying until the politics changes. Keep praying till the next person gets elected. Keep praying until, no, no, none of that. Keep praying until the peace comes. Radically different. This world does not have to change for you to have peace. And part of the struggle is we keep waiting for the change to happen because that's what's contingent upon. And God says, no, 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 it's not. Just give me your heart. C.S. Lewis said this about prayer. He said, I have learned that prayer is not about changing God. Prayer is about changing me. And prayer won't change you if you won't be honest with God. So let's end. Let me end by giving you a starting place. I'm going to give you something to practice. If you know where to practice, start with the thing that you worry about most or are anxious about. Don't forget, it doesn't have to be all the time. You can put it aside, then it pops back up again. I'm going to be, I'll put it on the screen so you can see it, but hopefully you write it down. Start with this. Find a quiet place with God, sit down, and say to God these words. Heavenly Father, I need you to what? Just fill in whatever you, whatever you want him to do. This is how we usually pray anyway. This is the prayer. Lord, I need you to give me that job. Lord, I need you to fix my marriage. Lord, I need you to, it's okay. Whatever it is, just put that on there. That's the starting place. That's how we start praying anyway. I need you to change my son, my daughter, whatever the case may be. But now comes the second part. And then after you write that down, write this down. If you don't, Lord, I'm afraid that. If you don't, I'm afraid that. Now, listen, if you're willing to do that, now you're this close to getting to the place where you're revealing your heart. God, I want you to do this, but quite honestly, if you don't, here's what I'm afraid of. What's your greatest anxiety? God, if you don't do this, then I'm afraid of what? What are you afraid that's going to happen? For those men and women throughout all of history who are willing to allow their Heavenly Father to see and hear from them from the deepest part of their hearts, those are the men and women who will say to you, I can't explain it, but I have peace. And my husband didn't come back. I have peace, and my spouse died. I have peace, and I'm out of a job. I have peace because they have allowed God to meet them at the deepest part of their heart. Let's close. So how many of you remember the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands? All right, not bad, not bad. I, mean, I do these little surveys every now and then to see how old you are. Um, <laughs> so you remember that song. Um, so years ago, uh, shortly after we moved into this building, in fact, uh, we used to have this great big pulpit up front, huge oak pulpit. It was probably this wide, this tall. And I had my, our firstborn daughter, Sarah, come join me one Sunday. Uh, she was able to talk and sing, and I was going to have her sing with me. He's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, first thing we had to do, we had to get a big box because, and with a step, because if she stood next to me, you couldn't see her. So that's how, the big, how big this pulpit was. So we had a box, and she stood up so she, people could see her. And I had the, you know the song, he's got the whole world 
In his hands, he's got the whole wide world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. And then she took off. He's got you and me, Daddy. Oh. (laughs) See, you're supposed to say, oh. In his hands, he's got Mommy and Dana. In his hands, and then we practiced as I had her turn and look at all the people and say, he's got all these people in his hands. And everybody did what you just did. Oh. Listen, he's got the sun and the rain. In his hand, he's got the wind and the weather. In his hand, he's got the whole world. In his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. But let me make it more real to you. He's got the world financial markets. In his hands, he's got the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. In his hands, he's got the Democrats and the Republicans. In his hands, He's got what keeps you awake at night. In his hands, he's got the uncertainty of the world. In his hands, pick your thing. He's got the whole world in his hands. Friends, that song has more theological content than you give it credit for. Now, I knew when I told you this story, you'd go, oh... And if all that song does for you is have you go, oh, then you're going to keep living your life with anxiety and worry. But when you look at what the Apostle Paul says, shift your worry and your anxiety over to a conversation with the one who hasn't changed. And then get on with your life. Christians, the hope of this world is Jesus without question. But the present hope of them seeing Jesus is in you keeping your joy. Don't look like the rest of the world. Stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these truths. I know that now when we leave throughout the week, With a smile, people are going to be angry because they can't get that song out of their head. (laughs) And I hope that they'll keep singing that song until the peace comes that they so desperately need. May we get to the open honesty with you that would reveal our heart so that we finally allow you in to guard our hearts and not just guard the things we care that we think are more important. A lot of uncertainty in this world, but you know what? You haven't changed. So we'll trust you and we'll face the world with joy. Amen. God bless you.